Well, as we are here to focus on the cross, uh, the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, there's no better representation uh, than the elements we have set before us, which is understandably why, through the history of the Christian church, uh, acknowledging and honoring this day in what is called a Christian calendar uh, almost always includes the bread and the cup, because they very much physically represent to us the reality of what Jesus accomplished on the cross and, of course, with his uh, resurrection uh, just three days later. Uh, my task tonight is that I'm hoping to uh, encourage us by way of reminder about the centrality of the cross. And one way to remind us of that is by looking in one New Testament book in particular. Obviously, there's much said about the cross. All four Gospels have their own account of the crucifixion. And then, of course, the theological and doctrinal implications are mentioned by almost all the New Testament writers. But there's one letter in particular that I want to look at, and it's in the book of Galatians. So most of my observations and remarks tonight will just focus on the book of Galatians. And I've chosen that book because the Apostle Paul uh, keeps referencing the cross and he keeps referencing crucifixion as a major theme in the letter. Now, I don't want to spend very much time tonight with you uh, talking about some of the surrounding issues about Galatians. Uh, obviously, one of the things that makes it unique, it's not a letter to just a certain local church like several of Paul's other letters, but rather it's to a region of churches. And people debate, and we're not going to get into the debate tonight, whether it was northern Galatia or southern Galatia. Uh, if you want a definitive answer on that, get with Pastor Brad after the service tonight. <clears throat> but there are several things that Paul states in reference to to the cross, and I've decided to choose three of them uh, to bring to our attention tonight. And I'm going to make a comment about each of these three texts, uh, just briefly. And I'd like to begin by asking you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And as you're turning there, uh, please recall that uh, this letter contains some of the harshest rebukes of any of the Apostle Paul's letters, and with good reason, because there are these folks who uh, are Jewish, they are called Judaizers, and even though they have received the gospel, or at least given some affirmation to it, many of them have been contradicting the doctrine of justification by faith, and in particular, are trying to impose all the ceremonies on, of Judaism on new believers, whether Jewish or Gentile. And, of course, Paul rolls up his sleeves and writes this letter and tackles that issue. And, in fact, some would call this the, uh, the Magna Carta of the New Testament because he makes a bold defense of the liberty we have in Christ and the freedom in Christ and that the law no longer has us under bondage. So, having said that, Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit uh, through faith. Here, the ground of our justification is attached to what Jesus did at the cross, especially in relationship uh, to the law. Uh, The way I read from the American Standard Bible, it said in verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law. I think the better sense of that statement is the ESV translation, which clearly states it as for all who rely on the works of the law. That is, if a person thinks that they're going to be in a right standing with God by depending on the law, they are like hamsters on the wheel where they'll constantly be moving but not really gaining any ground because one of the unique features of the law is that the obedience uh, equation, how much of the law do you have to be faithful in to be holy enough for God to approve and accept us in His presence? And as most of you probably know, it's not 90%. It's funny, this just popped into my mind. I I try to avoid doing spontaneous things at this age, but uh, when I became a Christian, and I had been a Christian about six months, we were talking about obedience and commitment to Christ, and I announced to the person who had led me to Christ, well, you know, I think I'm 80% committed. And I was commended, you know. 80%, that's pretty good to be six months, you know, in your Christian walk, and you're already 80% committed not understanding that at the get-go, it's kind of like marriage, 100% is what's expected. But in the context of the Old Testament, uh, 100% adherence is what God requires. And that's what he's getting at uh, when he says that um, before God is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith, and he states that if you're going to live by the law, you have to keep it totally. And of course, no one is capable of doing that. Uh, The law, of course, is given to display God's holiness and His righteousness, but there is this curse uh, for someone who thinks they're going to live by the law, which the Pharisees and the scribes and the others all were zealous for the law, as was the Apostle Paul in his pre-Christian days. Uh, And yet, it's like throwing a life ring to someone drowning, and the life ring is made out of concrete. It's not ultimately going to save them. And they understood, even as they quote from the Old Testament, that anyone who hangs on a tree is, is cursed. And in fact, uh, there's a particular kind of figure of speech that in this text in the Greek New Testament is literally translated, God made Christ a cursed one, that he made Jesus a cursed one. And he became cursed so that those who believe in him would not have to receive that curse uh, upon ourselves. In fact, he says he has become a curse for us, as Pastor Brad alluded to uh, just a few moments ago. 
So in taking the sinner's place on the cross, Jesus became as totally liable for sin as if he was totally guilty of sin. And of course, we know him who knew no sin. He was perfect and righteous in all of his words and deeds and in his spirit. I would remind you, in fact, probably because Brad preaches more often, he's probably in the lead, but this might be one of the most quoted verses between the two of us that we constantly reference. But I'm getting one more, to my credit. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that is, Jesus. And a passage in Isaiah that I'm sure we all have read many times, but don't let the repetition cause you to lose the import of it. In Isaiah 53, 5, speaking of the Messiah who was to come, that suffering servant, but he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And so Paul is stating here that the cross is, is necessary for the curse to be escaped. And the only way the curse can be escaped is that someone has to take it. You and I deserve to take it, but Jesus has taken it uh, in our stead. So the cross is the ground of our justification. That's the ransom that is paid, another important biblical term. Now flip back to Galatians chapter 2. Because he also references the cross and the crucifixion as the means of our sanctification. Uh, Galatians 2, uh, 19 through uh, 21, and then I'll turn to another verse after that. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died uh, needlessly. And so <clears throat> here he is touching on a, a principle, and that is that, as we're already acknowledging, the law brings condemnation, not justification. But because we are united to Christ, we are in union with Christ when we place our trust in him and we become a Christian, and we are spiritually reborn. And when the Holy Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ comes to dwell in us, at that point, we are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that union, we can say that we have been crucified with Christ in the sense that we are drawing wonderful benefit from what he took upon himself in his crucifixion, and it's applied to us, and that is him paying that uh, penalty. And I take this verse hand in hand with the statement he makes a few chapters later in Genesis, excuse me, Galatians 5.24, when he says, now those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. 
Because we have been identified with Christ, and by the way, won't, won't turn there, but Romans 6 explains this beautifully, where he talks about we have been identified with him in his death, and we are identified with him in his resurrection. We are given new life by being in union with him in his resurrected life. But being our, our sinful nature being crucified shows what our disposition should be toward our flesh, and that even though we still have the flesh once we are new creatures in Christ, we must do all that we can to not coddle the flesh or pamper it or, or spoil it or encourage it. And in fact, the way one of my favorite commentators stated it, we are to be ruthlessly fierce in rejecting the flesh along with its uh, desires. And the Apostle Peter echoes this very thought when he says over in 1 Peter 2.24, and he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so with those two verse sections, Galatians 2.19-21 and Galatians 5.24, which again reads... Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's really stating two aspects of this crucifying. And in Galatians 2.20, we have been crucified with Christ. This is something that has happened to us as a result of our union with Christ. And it speaks of our freedom from the condemnation of the law. The Galatians 5.24 is that this is some crucifying that we're doing ourselves. We are seeking to crucify these sinful desires and passions. And so we're taking action to crucify that old nature, the flesh. And it speaks of our freedom from the power of the flesh by proactively putting to death uh, the flesh. You know, back earlier in chapter 5, Obviously, this brings up a certain tension in our lives, doesn't it? New creatures in Christ, we're desiring to crucify the flesh, to say yes to God, no to sin. And yet, as he mentions back earlier in chapter 5, if you let your eye glance back to verse 16, he talks about this battle that goes on. Verse 15, but if you, excuse me, verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh has set its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And then he gives a list. What are the deeds of the flesh? What does that look like? And then he goes on to talk about the fruit of the spirit in verse uh, 22. But he obviously is reminding us of something that we're all well aware of and that is that the flesh and spirit are in conflict. But it's important. If you glance at those verses I was just referencing, in verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit. Verse 18, be led by the Spirit. Verse 25, which we have not read yet, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so we realize that in order for us to prevail... And saying no to the flesh, we have got to be relying on the Holy Spirit within us who does enable us uh, and empowers us uh, to live uh, obediently. And so 
crucifying the flesh is a part of the crucifixion principle that is something that we are seeking uh, to do. And as I said, the other is something that has been done or has happened for us. <clears throat> you know, it's, um, it's much like uh, marriage. Uh, when I'm officiating a couple getting married and we're going through the wedding vows, um, they're all wonderful words, but one of the final words in the declaration of intent near the beginning of the service is uh, each the groom and the bride are each asked, are you prepared to forsake all others, keeping yourself only for her so long as you both shall live, or only for him so long as you both shall live? And so when you're getting married on that day, that vow is that you are going to be faithful and loyal to that one person. And that is not unlike what we determine when we decide to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and make Him Master and Lord. That means He is Master, He is Lord of our life, and that's something that we need even as a husband or a wife sets about doing, doing what we need to do to remain faithful uh, to that calling. So the cross is the means of our sanctification as well as the ground of our justification. But look at Galatians 6.14. This is the third affirmation I want to bring to your attention. He says, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross is to be the object of our boasting. Or, to put it another way, a fair translation, the cross is supposed to be that which we glory in. Because to boast means to boast or to glory in something. And so the very thing that apparently these legalists were avoiding, Paul puts center stage in this letter. And so should we. So should we. And I say that it was a problem because he mentions, and he doesn't unpack it, in 5.11, But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. And this is not the only place that the cross of Christ is described as a stumbling block because some people find the whole concept repulsive, and it's offensive. And uh, Paul uh, tackles this uh, with even more vigor when he's writing to the Corinthians. And uh, you'll recognize this, and I, I mention this as another reference simply because he adds there that as we seek to boast of nothing except the cross, that he says that cross represents that the world has been crucified to me and I to the world which means, even as we heard an excellent message at Ligonier a couple of weeks ago from Vody Bachman, that we are not to love the world. There are certain things we are not to love. It's wrong to love certain things. And being crucified with Christ and seeking to crucify the flesh creates a, a certain uh, renouncing of the world. We don't pull ourselves out of the world. We're told other places that uh, you'd have to leave the world to only relate to godly people but we're supposed to be salt and light, and that's a, a message for another time. But let me remind you of what he says about the cross when he's writing to the Corinthians. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness 
to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Then Paul goes on to ask, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And because of this centrality of the cross and Paul's understanding of the Christian life, he goes on to say just a few verses later, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It can't be any more central uh, than that. And so the foolish wisdom of the world is part of what we have renounced, and it's through the cross that we find ourselves crucifying ourselves to the world and vice versa. You know, as we have gathered here to reflect, and I appreciated your words at the beginning, Brad, because I just read an article a few days ago about uh, a younger man who had become a Christian, and when the Easter season rolled around for the first time in his Christian experience, um, he had read the account of Jesus' uh, torture and his death, and then he heard that there was a holiday called Good Friday, and he, the word he used, he said, I winced when I even heard the expression Good Friday, because like Brett explained, it's uh, how can the grimmest of days be good? And we know because of what was accomplished uh, at the cross. But you know, when we look at the biblical story, uh, particularly of Jesus uh, in the gospel record, I think that as we read it and as we reflect upon it, I think it's, it's typical that we often find ourselves identifying with certain uh, characters in the biblical accounts, especially those who came in contact with the life and ministry of Jesus. And so perhaps we read about Peter and his denial, and there's a point, you know, I can understand that, I can sympathize. Um, perhaps Thomas, who got the moniker Doubting Thomas, maybe we think we can identify with someone like that. or about the father who had the possessed son, and Jesus said, do you believe? He said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. I've identified with that uh, statement many times in my life. Or Mary standing and watching her son executed on the cross, and for anybody who's ever lost a child, I'm sure there's a, a sense of identification. Those who were privy uh, to the crucifixion events itself, the disciples who were hanging around in the shadows, the crowd standing at the foot of the cross, including the Roman soldier. Um, we just identify with different people. But you know who I think we all have something in common with? And this, this may give you a start. 
I think we all have something very much in common with Barabbas. Barabbas, his son, excuse me, his name means son of the father. And the little bit we know about him from Matthew, Mark, and John, uh, Matthew says he was notorious. Mark said he was uh, in league with insurrectionists who had actually murdered. It doesn't say that Barabbas murdered himself, but he was spent time with a band of people that were strongly zealous in their insurrection against the government of Rome. Uh, John tells us he was a robber. And those of you that know my testimony know that I can identify with that, sadly. But I say that we have something in common with him because when you think about Barabbas, whose name means son of the father, and you think of Jesus, who was the son of God the Father, that the one who was sentenced to die for crimes of which he was certainly guilty, the other one, Jesus, was sentenced to die for similar crimes but was entirely innocent. One walked across the pavement a newly free man while the other was shredded by the Roman scourge. One went out of the palace to meet the cheers of friends while the other silenced all who watched him carry a rough cross on his bloodied back. One went to bed that night, probably surrounded by family and friends who loved him. The other certainly died and was hastily buried in a cave, his death scattering his friends. Two sons of the father, one whose death made it possible for the other to be set free. Thank God that the innocent one died so that the rest of his father's children could be set free by believing in him. Thank God for Jesus on the cross who stood in the place of the justifiably condemned, who suffered the scourging due the sinner, who endured the excruciating pain of the cross in place of Barabbas. And if we really get the point, in place of me, and in place of you. I wanted us to think about those things before we shared communion tonight.